You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. Well, good morning. We have a lot of familiar faces and a few faces we don't get to see all the time. I'm glad to see everyone here this morning. Welcome. Um, we're in a series around here. We've taken several Sundays now. We're we're looking at what the Bible has to say about honor, and we're taking a biblical view. Now, we've already covered some ground. Um, I'm going to take us back. I'll do a not really a review, but kind of a review just to give you a little bit of a look at where we started. Um, and we started in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In this passage in 1 Samuel, you have uh, Eli, who was the 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 highest ranking priest at the temple in Shiloh. And then he had two sons that were working as priests in that temple. And his sons were corrupt. And their corruption was so bad that it had corrupted the temple to the point that the the citizens, the people of Israel, didn't even want to come worship anymore. They didn't want to come to the temple and bring their offerings to the Lord because the corruption was so bad. And the Lord had had enough. Um, Eli was, I want to call him top dog. He was the highest ranking person there. He had both the position and authority to clean up the problem and to fix it. And he would not. He would verbally chastise his sons, but he wouldn't do anything about it. And corruption continued. Well, ultimately, the buck stops on his desk. It stops with him. And the day came when God had had enough. And uh, that's kind of where we pick it up. This is God talking to Eli in 1 Samuel 2, 29. He says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with all the best of the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, says the Lord, but now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And so judgment came. Um, a little bit of history. He was a direct descendant of Aaron and the... I don't know the proper way to say that. The Aaronic priesthood? I want to be careful. It's not the ironic and it's the priesthood of Aaron. (laughs) And they were direct descendants of that. But because he did not keep up his end of this agreement, he lost it. And his heritage lost it. And they were no longer listed in the priesthood after them. Now, one thing we've talked about, what's one of the greatest ways God can honor us? And that's with his presence, with the manifestation of his presence, with the manifestation of of his gifts. Um, Revelation. One of the greatest ways he can honor us is with revelation of of him, of his word, Um, seeing things we've not seen, learning things we didn't know as he continues to teach us and help us grow. That's a way he honors us. How do we then put ourselves in a position to receive honor from him? Based on this verse, we honor him because he said he will honor those who honor him. Those who honor me, I will honor. 
So if we want to receive honor from God, then we lead by honoring him. But the flip is also true. He says, those who don't honor me, I won't honor either. He says, I'm going to treat you the way you treat me under this umbrella of honor. Um, so this is an interesting thing. How much honor we receive from him is not up to him. A lot of people like to talk about the sovereignty of God, and he is sovereign. But in his sovereignty, he left this piece up to us. He said, those who honor me, I will honor. But that ball's in our court. So how much honor we receive from him is directly related to how much honor we show him. Um, read verse 30 again. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. What's he saying? Things have changed. He says, your house will not continue. Why? They didn't keep their, their end of the bargain. This is serious because this shows us something about God. Even the things he has given us, if we fail to honor them, we can lose them. Because we see that in this passage. Something that he had promised them, they lost. They didn't get to keep. He said, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. If you continue reading this story, we're not going to. Um, the Philistines came and started a, a battle in their region. Um, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. That was when the Ark of the Covenant got taken off into Philistine hands. And if I've got my story straight, the Ark did not return until King David came along. He's the one who brought it home and brought it back to Jerusalem. Um, in that battle, both of Eli's sons died. The corrupt sons died in battle. When news got back to dad that his sons had died in battle, he was, ha ha, and fell off of whatever he was sitting on, hit his head, broke his neck, and he died. And all three of them died in the same day. And that's kind of how that story played out. Um, but it all comes down to they were not honoring the things of God. They were placing low value on the things of God. So that kind of leads me to my thesis this morning for the message. If you fail to honor it, you can't keep it. If you despise it, you will lose it. Not a single person shouted, Amen! Hallelujah! Good preaching, Pastor. Well, no, that's that's sobering. That's not something we necessarily want to hear. But I'm suggesting it's something we need to hear. It's something we need to understand. If there's things that God has blessed us with that we do not honor, that we despise, and, and as a reminder, um, get a little ahead of myself, but the word despise in the Bible is different than the way we use it today in modern English. Um, in the Bible, it means to make little of, to have a low regard for, to place low value on, which fits the context much better. He says, if you honor me, I will honor you. If, if you place low value on me, I will place low value on you. See, now that fits the context, and, and that makes sense. So that's what's going on. But if we don't honor, if we fail to honor God and or his things, or if I really want to step out on a limb, his people, if we fail to honor, then 
he won't honor us. If we despise them, then we judge ourselves as being unworthy of them. That's what it comes down to. So if we are honoring the things of God, we are going to revere them. We are going to value them. We're going to reverence them. Um, I'll throw this out there on the other side. Ignoring is placing low value on. So to ignore the things of God is to place low value. Are you with me? So if God and his things are important to us, then our things will be important to him. If if we are casual with God and his things, he will be casual with us and our things. If we ignore God and his things, he will ignore us and our things. It's up to us. We kind of set the stage. So I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, I want to go over to Malachi chapter 1, and I want to give you at least one or two examples out of the Bible of a disrespect toward God. Um, there's all kinds of places we could go. There's no lack of it in the world today. But I, I want to just look at a couple. This first one here is, I almost want to call it a tone of disrespect. That'll make sense here in just a moment. We're coming into Malachi chapter one. Um, once again, kind of like where we were in Samuel, God is bringing correction to the nation and he's speaking to the priests. Um, once again, it's the priests who have kind of messed things up and that's who he's talking to. So in Malachi one, one says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This is God speaking. He says, I have loved you says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? We can stop there. There it is. A tone of disrespect. If God is talking to you and he says, I have loved you. What's the proper response to that? Thank you. I love you too. God, you're so good to me. I know you're right about that. You have loved me. What did they say? How have you loved us? What are they saying? What are you talking about, God? When did you love us? Where did you love us? How did you love us? In effect, what are they saying? No, you haven't. Prove it. Basically calling God a liar. I have loved you. (laughs) How? They're implying, no. No, you haven't. Point to it. Demonstrate. What are you talking about? All of that. Disrespect. That's a tone of disrespect. Now look at verse 2. We'll pick up where I left off anyway. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, and it fits the context of what he's talking about. But a lot of people get hung up and just trip right over this verse. And so much so they, they're not even hearing what God's trying to say because they're hung up on a part of this verse where it says, uh, and Esau I have hated. And they're thinking, well, God is love. He loves everyone. What's he doing hating Esau? And, and they get, get hung up on things like that. And 
I'll dig into it a little bit before we're done. But I understand that can be a challenging concept for some people to swallow. And if that's not hard enough, if you go to Romans chapter 9, it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were even born. That's not helping. (laughs) That's making it worse for some people. Well, is this Bible or not? Okay, it is. So how could God even do that? The simple answer is really this. He knew them before they were born. He knew their hearts, and he knew that where they were headed with their lives. He already knew that. It's the concept of God that many in the church are struggling with, um, even yet today. And uh, it's the ideas of God knowing the future and the past and all of it at once and how much... How much do we really have say and not say? God already sees. You get into some really interesting theological debates with all of that. And you can get into some interesting doctrines like Calvinism. And I'm not using my message to try and dismantle that this morning, but I don't agree with it. I was meditating on those things one time, and I'll just I'll just tell you, I was in a time of prayer. I was thinking along those lines, and I was praying, and I was just kind of quiet before him. And the Lord spoke to my heart. And, and I don't mean I heard anything with these ears. I'm not hearing voices. Angels didn't show up. Just in the quietness on the inside, I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. And what he said to me is, they're trying to squeeze me into their concept of time. And I got to meditating on that. Understand this. Time is a dimension of this natural realm. Science will tell you that, and they're right. Time is a dimension of the natural realm. It has a beginning, and it has an end. But it is tied to this natural realm. The spirit realm is not tied to the dimension of time. Time does not operate in the spirit realm the same way it does in the natural realm. But if all you know is natural things, then that's a hard concept to grasp. God is not limited by time the way we are in this realm. He knew their hearts ahead of time, before they were even born. And he knew where they were going to go. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But if you look at those two, now, he says, I love Jacob. Can I point out something that in my mind, is good news. (laughs) Jacob was far from perfect, (laughs) yet God loved him. So it wasn't perfection that God was after. What was it? It was what was in Jacob's heart. He had his faults. He had his flaws. But he had a heart after God. And God knew that. So hold that thought, and I'll come back to it. But back here in Malachi, we're still in chapter 1. I want to jump down to verse 6. This is God speaking. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. But place low value on. Yet you say... (laughs) In what way have we despised your name? There it is again. That same tone of disrespect. What are you talking about? Verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar. But but then say, in what way have we defiled you? 
by saying the table or the altar of the Lord is contemptible. And then he explains how. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? So what's going on? He's, he's accusing the priesthood of placing low value on him. And the example he brings up is the offerings. So we're, we're running very parallel to what we read in Samuel. Um, we're hundreds of years later. But we got the same thing going on. In this case, keep in mind, they weren't dropping money in an offering plate. They're bringing animals to the altar to be sacrificed to the Lord. And so what he's pointing out is, you're bringing to my altar the blind animals, the lame animals, the sick animals, and you're presenting them on the altar as sacrifices to me. And that's the part where he says... Try giving that as a gift to your governor. Do you think he's going to accept that from you? That's what's going on here. And I'll just point it out. I know you already all know this, but in the law of Moses, that was a no-no. Deuteronomy 15.21 says, And if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So they should have already known this. Why are they doing it? Economic reasons. See, that lame, blind, and sickly goat, sheep, cow, whatever it is, that lame, blind, sick animal doesn't bring as much money on the market. The strong, healthy, good animals, they they bring more money at the market. So let's take the good ones to market because that's our income. And then these sick ones that really aren't going to bring much anyway, I know, we'll offer those on the altar to the Lord. That way we bring our sacrifices to God and we make more money and we're happy. And God's going, I don't think so. He told him not to do that. He's saying, I don't want your offering. He says, give it to your governor. See how, see how far that gets you. Can you bring an offering to the Lord and him not accept it? Apparently. What's it reveal though? A heart issue. See, honor is not in the external things. Honor is a reflection of what's on the inside. And so they're taking the best of their increase to market. And they're taking the worst of what they've come up with. Uh, I'll give that to God. I see. It's a heart thing. Um, now, bring this forward into modern times a little bit, because once again, I don't hear any baying or mooing in the fellowship hall. That's wonderful. No one brought animals to church today. Praise God. No, when we bring offerings, we throw money in the offering plate. Um, and I shouldn't even say it that way. We bring our offerings to the Lord and place them in the offering plate. You know, here you go, God. Bah. No, but we bring money. So along those lines, then I was, let me throw a verse up real quick and then I'll give my illustration. Proverbs 3 9. He tells us, honor the Lord with your possessions. I believe it's the King James translation it says, honor the Lord with your substance. And he says, and with the first fruits of all your increase. Okay, so we bring offerings to honor the Lord with our substance. Okay, so I was thinking, so what if 
the offering plate is going around and I want to put something in there. So what do you do? You pull out your wallet and you start flipping through the presidents, right? All of our bills have presidents on them. So you're flipping through the presidents. So what if, if Chris and I are going to put something in there and, and I just pull out an Abraham Lincoln? No, that's the wrong one. George Washington. I know my presidents, really. You pull out a George Washington. I'm trying to get to the $1 bill. All right. So what if we pull out George Washington and we lay that reverently in the offering plate? Is that really a good offering from me? Now let me pause. Offerings, and in our day, in the plate, are not about amount. I really don't believe that. Let me pause just long enough to say, do you remember the example? This one I won't turn to because I think most of you remember it. I have another one you may not. In the Gospels, when the woman came to the temple and brought her offering to the temple and she put in the two mites, we call it the widow's mite. And remember, I, I, at best, that's a couple pennies. I know it wasn't much. And Jesus turned to his disciples and do you remember what he said? She just gave more than anyone here today. Now, did she? No. She probably bought the smallest offering dropped in the plate that day. It was a couple pennies. But when God looks at an offering, he's not reading the dollar amount. He's looking at your heart. Now, in her case, what was that two pennies? I believe Jesus said it was everything she had. So did she value those two pennies? It was all she had. So for her to give those two pennies to God, high value. And when he looked at that offering, he said, she outgave everybody today. Why? Because of its value to her. So now back to my George Washington. If we drop a dollar in the offering plate, is that a great offering for the Lord? has nothing to do with the amount. But God has blessed us more than that so that a dollar doesn't mean a lot to me. not saying it means nothing, but relatively speaking. Um, I'm not going to miss any meals because I put a dollar in the offering plate. My life is really not going to be interrupted on any level because I put a dollar in the offering plate. That's what I'm trying to say. You understand? And everyone's situation may be different. But see, God's not looking at dollar amount. He's looking at, is it worth something to you that you're giving to me? Does that make more sense? Now, here's how I would have worded it, but not based on the widow's might, based on an Old Testament passage. When I think about bringing my offerings to the Lord, I put it in these terms. I want it to cost me something. But it's going to mean more to me if it costs me something. And if it means more to me, then I know it'll mean more to him. And I got that from King David. There was an incident in the Old Old Testament. Um, I think I got the story straight. I'm going on memory here. If I got it wrong, you can call me on it. But King David did something the Lord told Israel to never do. And that was, have a census. And he did. He did it anyway. 
And by disobeying the Lord and by sinning, he opened the door for the enemy to get in. And I believe like an epidemic disease was taken off through the nation, something like that. And David realized, it's my fault. I sinned. And he's crying out to God, going, God, we got to stop this. And the Lord sent a prophet and gave him instruction. Said, here's what you got to do. I need you to go buy this specific piece of land, this property. I want you to build a temple on it. And I want you to offer a sacrifice to me. And I'll stop this thing. And so I may have some of those details a little. I'm digging on my memory here. The important point of the story is he now had direction from God. I got to go buy that piece of land. I'm going to build an altar. And I'm going to give a sacrifice to my father. Okay, so off he goes. Goes and finds that piece of land. Finds the owner of that piece of land and says, I need to buy this piece of land. Long story short, this is a national thing going on. The owner was well aware of what's going on. Whether he knew ahead of time or not, he was in complete compliance. And he said, yes, I need to sell you this piece of land. You need to build an altar and you need to present a sacrifice to the Lord. And he was so on board, he said, tell you what, King David, I will give you the land. You can have it. It is free. I will give you the land. Not only that, you build the altar. I'm going to run home. I will bring the sacrifice to put on the altar. I will give you um, his oxen or what he had to offer. He says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the sacrifices for the altar. And David looked at him and said, no. I will pay full price for that land. And I will bring my own sacrifice because I will not bring an offering to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. Let me show you just that one verse. I've told you the story. First Chronicles 21, verse 24. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours to or for the Lord nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. What's he saying? When I bring an offering to the Lord, it needs to cost me something. That's where I get that. I said, I want it to cost me something. When it costs me something, it means more. When my offering costs me something, more value to me, therefore he will value it more. And how many of you have figured out it's good when God values your finances? Amen. Here's a huge key. Then honor him with your substance, with your first fruits. And when you bring an offering to the Lord, make sure you value what you're bringing. And then he will value you. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, now I'm... I'm going to head toward a conclusion. I promised I'd go back to that Jacob Esau thing, so we'll at least look at it a little bit. So in Malachi 1, we read, he said, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Um, We're going to go to Genesis 25 to look at this account, and the reason we're going to go there is because that's where the New Testament, when it references those two, that's where it sends us. So we're going to tie the two pieces together. Things we know about Jacob and Esau, Esau was a skillful hunter. He was quite the outdoorsman, and in that day and in that culture, that was highly valuable. Um, That was food. (laughs) That was important. Um, He was a man of the field. 
Uh, he was a man's man. He was a macho man. He was a strong man. He, he was the picture of a man in that day. And it, Scripture even says, Dad kind of favored Esau. A little bit. He was a man's man. Now, nothing against Jacob, but he just, Jacob wasn't as manly. You know, he was a little more of a mama's boy. Um, rather than spend time hunting and fishing, he'd rather be in the kitchen. Tell off of myself, but I relate. <laughs> I love to cook. You know, I've always, I've always said, you hunt it and you fish it, and I'll make dinner with it. You know, it's a group effort here, you know. But that's, that's the way Jacob was. He was a bit of a mama's boy. They tell us he was kind of mild-tempered, kind of a quiet man, you know. So, and clearly, mama favored him. All right, so kind of the stuff. But what else do we know about Jacob? You don't turn your back on him. In the early years of his life, before God really got a hold of him, um, he was a bit of a deceiver. In fact, that's what Jacob means. The Hebrew name Jacob means supplanter. Um, Webster's tells us that supplant means to supersede another, especially by force or treachery. Yikes. Um, the Latin roots of that word, it means to trip up or to overthrow. But you go study the early part of his life, yeah, he was a little deceptive. He kind of did what he wanted to to get what he needed, you know. Um, so anyway, you might wonder then, why, why'd God love that? Again, it wasn't about the outside. It was about the heart. So I want to show you the heart. Genesis 25, verse 29. Familiar story, I hope, for many. Jacob had cooked a stew. I like it. Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. I'm not going to take that away from him. Been a long day. I don't know if it was a successful day or not. He'd been working hard. Hunting was hard work or fishing or whatever he was doing. He was tired. He was weary. Granted. Okay? Esau says to Jacob, Please feed me with some of that red stew, for I'm weary. And then it says, Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. I'm sure that's important for some reason, but I'm, in the moment, I'm not sure why. But anyway, it was a red stew. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. That's what's going on. What they're talking about is the blessing of the Lord that was on the firstborn. And this was something directed by God. It was not just a physical blessing. It was a spiritual blessing. Blessing pronounced by father unto his oldest child, oldest son. And it was very much a hand of the favor of God on that firstborn. All right. And you can study that out. There's lots you can dig into if you want to, but it is a real tangible thing. And Esau, as situation would have it, made it out first. They were twins. And he just happened. Isn't he the one that Jacob had him by the heel? in the womb, but Esau got out first. So he got the birthright. Jacob didn't. All right. Anyway, what we're seeing here is that uh, Jacob was valuing the blessing of God. He wanted that birthright. And he was right to value it. He was right to want it. Um, he was going about it the wrong way. 
he was being a little deceptive. That, that continued, if you know the story of his life. But anyway, so he catches his older brother in a weak moment. And he says, tell you what, I'll give you a big old bowl of this red stew. But you sell me your birthright. He said, I want your birthright. What should Esau have said? <laughs> no. I don't care how weary you are, and you may be as hungry as you've ever been. You're probably not about to die. And you should say, no, I will keep my birthright, thank you. You can keep your stew. I'll go get some from mom. Hello? Moms don't usually say no. I don't care how good of a cook your brother is. Just thinking. Verse 32, Esau says, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Well, he's living in the moment. That birthright may or may not come someday when dad's about to pass away. I think that's something they did on his deathbed, I think. I'm not an expert on Jewish culture, but I think. So he didn't have it yet. He's like, I need this soup now. I'm about to die. What good's a birthright going to do me? But what's he showing? He doesn't value it. He's not valuing the favor of God on his life. Verse 33, so Jacob said, swear to me this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. But I'm not, I'm not reading into the story. I'm not adding to it. It says right here in Scripture, thus Esau despised his birthright. He placed low value on the blessing of God on his life. He didn't care. Now we jump over to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament reference. And look at this. Hebrews 12, 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food, for one bowl of soup, for one meal, sold his birthright. Now pause. Notice what category God put Esau in didn't value his birthright, the hand of God on his life, and traded it for a bowl of soup. And in the eyes of God, he's right up there with fornicators and profane persons. God views things different than we do sometimes. Look at the group. Verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now that is a little King Jamesy. Let's go to the New Living Translation of verse 17. He says, you know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Can I put it this way? That ship had sailed. Now, this is not a popular teaching in our culture today, and I'm mostly talking about the church culture and churches today. This is not popular because why? We live in an age of grace, and we serve a God of forgiveness who loves us and sent Jesus to die for us. And if we're not careful, and I won't even talk about entitlement, we get this idea or this attitude that I can just kind of live life like I want to and I can do whatever I want to and if I do something wrong, God will forgive me. He loves me. I'm his child. 
So it's okay. Well, let me say this. Will he forgive you? Yeah, he probably will. But are you going to automatically get back everything you messed up or sold for soup or whatever the case may be? No. He'll love you. He'll forgive you. But that ship has sailed. In some cases, he's already given it to someone else. See, we can still get forgiveness, but there are some consequences that came from our choices that we're going to have to walk out, that are going to follow us. Again, not super popular, but it's true, and we need to understand it. There are things that God has for each of us. In His plan for your life, there are things He has for you, things He wants to bless you with, things He wants you to do for Him. Even things he wants you to give back to him. And sometimes that seems hard in a moment. It's always a good deal. If he asks you for something, trust me, he'll take care of you on the backside. But in any case, there's always things he has for us. Blessings, good things, things he'll ask of us, things he asks us to do. Whatever they are, if we value him, we need to do those things. Walk in those things and value those things. Because if if we get this Esau attitude, and I'm just going to go do what I want, I'll get forgiveness later. Well, you may get the forgiveness later, but you're going to miss out on what he had. Um, I want to go verse 17 again. This is the BBE. I think that stands for the Bi- uh, Bible in basic English, something like that. It's another translation of the Bible. But they put it really interesting. It says, for you have knowledge that even long after when he was desiring the blessing for his heritage, he was turned away. Though he made his request frequently and with weeping because the past might not be changed. You can get forgiveness, but that doesn't change the past. The past is the past and some consequences of the past are going to remain. And some things that we could have had that we didn't, they're, they're gone. Um, if we squander opportunity, I, I think specifically, and maybe, maybe I think about this more than others, maybe not, maybe you think about this too, but I think about the call of God on someone's life. I think about His plan for our lives and the things that before we were even born, He charted a course of what He would say is the life He wants us to live and how much of that we surrender to and submit to and how much of that we say, no, God, I don't want to do that. And that varies from person to person. But I think of that plan. But that plan He has for us is not only full of resource to fulfill it, but reward for yielding to Him and submitting to Him and following what He wanted. There's reward for that. But then when we don't do those things, so many times when it's things He needed done and we say no, He gives it to someone else. Because he's still going to get his plan done in the earth. But along with that is the reward that goes with it. That reward's going to go to someone else for doing what he asked them to do. One of the examples I think of, um, because I've heard this spoken of specifically, was Catherine Kuhlman. Now, I don't know how many of you know that name. Um, There was a healing revival from 1947 to 1958 in this nation. God moving in tent meetings and tent revivals in amazing ways. And there were many, many preachers 
holding tent revivals all through that time. And and I'm not trying to elevate the men. They're, they were just willing to be used by God. They were not perfect people. Not everything they preached was perfect any more than everything anybody preaches is perfect. We know in part. The only preacher to walk this earth who never got it wrong was Jesus. The rest of us are doing the best we can. Now, I never purposely preach anything wrong, but I also don't pretend that I'm perfect and know everything. Most of you know me well enough to know that's not true. <laughs> so we're doing the best we can. And it was the same way with a lot of those preachers during the healing revivals. They're doing the best they can. But because their heart was right toward God, we saw miracles in that decade or a little better like we've not seen in modern times. We're talking healing miracles huge stuff. I love reading the different articles that came out of the healing revival. That's from 1947, 1958. Well, she was in that time and she was one of many where God was moving. And I will admit she drew probably a little more criticism than some because not only was God doing miracles in her services, um, she was a she. Even today, some people get hung up on that. I don't believe God uses women preachers then don't receive. <laughs> Sorry. If God wants to use a woman to speak to me, I'm going to receive what God has. <laughs> Thank you, dear. <laughs> Set myself up there. No, it's true, though. You don't like to admit it any more than me, but how many times has God been speaking through your spouse and you're just like, I know that's you, God. It happens. Would you rather he have to use a donkey to get your attention? He's done that too. All right. Point being, um, yeah, I'm not against woman preachers. Okay. Um, and I won't go down. That's a rabbit trail. I can defend a lot of that, but that's a rabbit trail. <laughs> and I'm trying to close, so let's not. And then you add to it, she was a little, I don't know what an honoring word is, eccentric. She had the the flowing dresses that would blow as she would walk. And I think she would even kind of do that on purpose and, and kind of have a flow. And then she'd have a singy songy in her voice, you know, very, ooh, ah, and then God moved and miracles happened. So do what you want with that. But she also made no bones about, I, I read a biography by her and she said, this ministry that I'm in, this pulpit, this ministry that she brought all through that time, she said, I wasn't God's first choice. And, and she said, I knew it. His first choice to do that job was a man. But he told God, no. He didn't want to pay the price. She paid a price to do that job. She tried once to marry, and it didn't work. So she remained a single woman most of her life, traveled most of her life, did not have kids, she gave a, a lot of what we might consider to be a normal life just to go serve God and go do that job for him. She gave up. Whoever God had in mind said no. And she was aware of it. I tell you what, though, she got the reward for that job. I promise you, you'll see that when we get to heaven. And I sit back and I wonder, first thing I wonder is how many things have I already said no to that he had to give to someone else because I was too busy. I didn't have time for him. 
that interrupted my schedule that day. And don't think big, huge national ministries. How many times did he just, he leaned on your heart to go minister to someone, to go, and I'm not saying preach, go edify someone, go build somebody up, they're having a hard time. Go take a single mom a bag of groceries. Take five minutes out of your day to pray for someone or to pray with someone. It's not always big, huge, you know, travel the world and preach the gospel things. Sometimes it's everyday, day-to-day things of being the hands and feet of Jesus. But we were too busy that day, and he had to find someone else. If he found someone else. I could give you other stories along those lines, but again, I'm trying to close. I think about these things. How many times did he have to find someone else? Because I was too busy. And in my heart, number one, God, I repent. And what is it you need me to do? What's my place? And in secondary in my heart, Lord, is there any extra jobs that I could pick up? Or do you have a lack somewhere where someone's not doing what you're asking that, that I can help carry a load? That's, that's my heart. It's things I think about. Can I honor him? Okay, i got to close this. What was my thesis for today? If I'm not honoring what he blesses me with, what he asks me to do, I can lose it. Um, Esau lost it. Um, Saul, we looked at this in the previous message. God said, I would have made Saul's kingdom eternal and his kids would have reigned on a throne and it would have been the legacy of King Saul. He said, I would have made his throne forever, but he wouldn't walk before me and he wouldn't obey me. So he took it away from Saul and gave it to someone else. He gave it to David. Um, and we saw that with Eli and his sons. They despised it and lost it forever. So would somebody please say with me, not me. Not me. God, I will do my part. I'll do what you ask me to do. I will honor you with my, with my substance. I will honor you with my time. I will honor you with my life in whatever way you ask. Can we walk in a higher degree of the fear of the Lord? of reverence for Him, have respect for the things of God, brace yourself, have respect for the people of God, again, not because they've earned it, but because they're God's kids. And can we have a higher degree of reverence for Him? Amen.